Let me tell you a story about Angie. Angie was such a happy young girl. She grew up in a home that was poor in material things, but rich with love. Her grandpa was the pastor of the AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal, in their small town in southern Alabama. She loved being in the church. She loved the smells, the well-worn Bible pages, and fresh flower bouquets. She loved the textures, smooth pew backs, and soft choir robes. She loved how the light filtered through the stained glass windows, painting jewel tones across the sanctuary. And she loved the sound, the joyous praise of the gospel choir. But most of all, she loved her grandpa's voice as he taught his people. He taught them stories of slaves in Egypt who were set free. He taught them about the people of God being in exile and awaiting deliverance. And he taught them about Jesus and how Jesus loved them. Angie soaked up those stories and sunk her roots deep down into them. When Angie was just 18, she married the boy of her dreams, the choir director's son. And it was perfect. Until it wasn't. They both had so wanted to have children, and when the babies didn't come, he blamed her. She never did figure out if he waited until he knew his new girlfriend was pregnant before he asked her for a divorce. Angie's easy self-assurance was crushed. And sadly, she slid into another marriage with a guy who was happy to build his ego on her shattered confidence. He eroded any sense of self that she had, and when he was done with her, she, not surprisingly, ended up married to an abuser. She still longed for the safety and peace she had felt in her grandpa's church, but it seemed far away. If she crept into the back pew on Sunday morning, she knew she'd get the side eye from all the godly women. They would notice the makeup she'd used to cover the evidence of her husband's most recent beating. White girls' makeup that didn't quite work, and they'd mutter, tut, tut. The faith she'd had as a young girl seemed naive and foolish. Angie, named after the angels, she longed for that peace and certainty, but she wasn't going to trust that easily again. She was working in a bar in the bad part of town, not because she liked it there, but because she knew there was zero chance of running into the AME church busybodies there. Her husband paid the rent, but if she needed anything from socks to a haircut, she needed to pay for it herself. So she made herself hard and small and slung beers and mopped toilets on the seedy side of town. One night, a white guy she'd never seen before walked in. He had an air of authority about him, as though he might be a cop. But there was also a beautiful warmth about him. He said, will you give me a drink? And she was disarmed. She stuttered, what are you, a rich white dude, doing here asking me for a drink? He said, if you really knew who I was, You'd be asking me for some great stuff. And so, Angie knew he was either a drug dealer or an undercover cop trying to frame her. 
And so we find ourselves in the fourth chapter of John's biography of Jesus. You may know it as the story of the woman who encounters Jesus at a well. But I told you the fictional story of Angie to help you imagine what some of the context might have been. As an aside, let me be clear, I know Jesus wasn't, isn't white, but it works to communicate Angie's surprise that he is engaging with her. You see, with the woman at the well, it's all too easy to slip into a space where we blame her for her failed marriages and social isolation. We may think, or we may have been told, that she must have been a bad woman, that she was probably a prostitute. If she was an outcast in her small village, there was probably reason for that. After all, where there's smoke, there's fire. So let's hear the story again, but this time, instead of seeing the woman as the author of her own misfortune, let's imagine that her life was a lot like Angie's. Here's how John tells it. Jesus left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, "'Please give me a drink.' He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, You would ask me, and I would give you living water. But, sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? Besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. 
But the time is coming, indeed is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. When I read this familiar story last week, I was struck by how knowledgeable the woman at the well was. She knew about the religious practices of her people and how they differed from those of the neighboring Jews. She knew of the disputes and mutual disdain that had arisen from those differences. She knew about the historic roots of the land and the well where she and Jesus met. She could trace her heritage back to the great patriarch Jacob. I assume that growing up, she was steeped in the oral history of her people and was rooted in that story. And she even seemed to have some awareness of the prophecy of a coming Messiah. This wasn't some poor waif who had climbed out of a ditch with no cultural attachments and belonging. The second thing that struck me was how concrete she seems to be in her thinking. Jesus offers her living water, participation in the life of his kingdom, and she interprets it as physical water. She asks, and how are you planning to get this water without a bucket and a rope? Even when he more clearly explains that he's offering a new spiritual life that will leap up like a spring within her, that he's offering her a mystical experience of the divine, she interprets it as something material, a practical benefit to her. She responds, that'd be great, because then she wouldn't need to come and get water at the well every day. Even when she's describing the coming of Messiah, she frames it in pragmatic, didactic terms. She says that when Messiah comes, he will teach or announce things to us. She's not looking for a mystical experience, the return of the transcendent divine glory to the temple. She just wants tangible facts. I'm sure she wasn't in the upper room in Jerusalem that first Easter, but she'd have had a lot of sympathy for Thomas's point of view. Don't give me your fairy tales about apparitions and angels until I can put my fingers in the nail holes. This didn't happen. Is this some sort of learning disability that she has, that she can't comprehend abstract ideas, that she interprets metaphors as concrete things? I don't think so. It might be better to call it a learned disability. She had been so disappointed, so often had the rug pulled out from under her. She'd been so deeply hurt. Abstract concepts like love and loyalty, faithfulness and security, community and camaraderie all seemed like a joke to her. All she could know for sure was the water in her bucket the food on her table, or not, and a roof over her head. So the notion of some intangible spiritual experience seemed like total hogwash to her. Perhaps like Madonna, she's just a material girl in a material world. 
So Jesus meets her at her point of pain. He tells her he knows her tragic history. He knows that she has been rejected by man after man after man. Every one of them, the men who had made promises to her, broke them. Divorce is now so normalized in our society that we may not appreciate how different it was in biblical times. In those days, it was always initiated by the man and didn't always require strong grounds for it. For example, Rabbi Hillel allowed divorce for almost any grievance, no matter how trivial. And a woman who didn't have support from her extended family could be left in a precarious position when forced out of her home. She has suffered the shame and loss of multiple divorces and possibly of an infertility problem that may have caused them, and now she seems to have lost the support of her community. She comes to the well alone, like Angie working in a dive bar in a different part of town so she won't run into anyone she knows because she is certain they will only judge her. And into that grief, loss, stigma, and isolation, Jesus speaks grace. Even though in some miraculous way he knows all of the sordid details of her past, he sees value in her, speaks respectfully with her, and offers her a great gift of a new life. A new life that's not defined by a better husband, a maid to fetch the water, and some new clothes. A new inner life that would be like an endless spring of fresh water within her. A new life that may not change much of her current outer life, but will make it infinitely more bearable. It doesn't always take a traumatic past with deeply broken trust for us to drift toward a material world view of faith. Modernism has set us up for it on many fronts, whether a scientific approach that requires solid empiric evidence before it can believe anything, an economic approach that envisions progress through technology and the acquisition of material stuff, or in the realm of religion, an approach that rejects the transcendent. In ancient times, people needed gods as explanations for dramatic natural phenomena, But now that we have science, we can dispense with the hocus-pocus. Of course, that stream of thinking has led many people to abandon faith altogether. But it has also percolated into the church. A church that has the marks of materialism will be a place that emphasizes tangible blessing rather than some magical future state. The prosperity gospel that offers health and wealth in the here and now is clearly a grandchild of modernity. It will be a church that emphasizes social connection with other interesting and nice people rather than connection with the divine. And it will be a church that's vaguely embarrassed by the miraculous and the transcendent. It'll sort of be the Rotary Club, but with music. And yet... And yet, at some level, even us postmoderns long for the transcendent. As Augustine put it 14 centuries before modernism took root, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
We may numb ourselves to avoid it, but at some level we all know the existential ache of spiritual beings who are trapped in physical bodies. Jesus speaks to that spiritual dimension when he tells the woman that God is spirit, so those who worship him must must worship in spirit and in truth. Yes, rows of chairs. Yes, great food at big table. Yes, lively music. Yes, interesting ideas. Or if they aren't interesting, at least time when you can do Wordle on your phone. Yes, worship is all of that, but it is more. The 20th century German theologian Karl Rahner, reflecting on faith in a modern and secular world, said that the devout Christian of the future will either be a mystic, one who has experienced something, or he will cease to be anything at all. Mysticism is not a word that we use a lot, and for some of us it may conjure up notions of psychedelic drugs and strange incantations over a lava lamp. That's not what Rahner is talking about. And in fact, in his writing, he tries to demythologize mysticism. He sees the experience of God as an ordinary occurrence because he's convinced that people are ultimately oriented toward transcendence. He presents the divine as accessible, even while maintaining that it's incomprehensible. I don't know what baggage you may be bringing with you, but even if it's a repeated cycle of betrayal and divorce, even if it's disappointment and loss, even if you've been told that the good news is a concrete set of steps to a better material life and have found that promise to be hollow, Or maybe your scars come from a background where the mystical was treated as a badge of honor and you had to fake it to fit in. Wherever you are coming from, whatever good reason you have for distrusting, I invite you to come along with the woman at the well and find more.